Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter 2? 2 Peter chapter 2. Before we look into God's Word this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh God, this, this is Your Word. It is authoritative. It is profitable. It's amazing. So help us as we look at Your Word this morning. Holy Spirit, would You... Would you show us what your word says? May we be helped by this passage of Scripture as we study it and take away areas that, that we may apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, direct us. Help us. This is your word, and may we give our diligence to it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the first Sunday of the new football season, and many teams' expectations are high, not, not excluding Philadelphia. Many teams aspire to make the playoffs. They're hoping to be over 500, but at this point in the season, anybody could win the Super Bowl. For some, though, their track record doesn't inspire hope. The New York Jets are one of those teams. They have the longest active postseason drought. They have not made the playoffs in 11 years. In those 11 years, they have finished last in their division six times. Imagine aspiring to win a Super Bowl with a track record like that over the last decade plus. Track records don't just pertain to football teams and records. We base our expectations for relationships, car performance, politics, many other things off of track records. In our study of 1 Peter a few weeks ago, we saw the firm track record of God's Word. It is reliable. It is authoritative. It is based off of eyewitness account. And in our text this morning, Peter is going to draw our attention to God's perfect track record when it comes to judgment and deliverance. So we're in 2 Peter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 10, looking at this central idea that God's certain judgment on false teachers and deliverance of the godly ought to compel believers to persevere in holy living. God's certain judgment on false teachers and deliverance of the godly ought to compel believers to persevere in holy living. As we consider these ten verses, there are two main sections of the text that we'll be looking at, and I would encourage your attention to come to 2 Peter 2, verse 1, as we consider the first point, and that is false teaching expected. False teaching expected. Look with me at 2 Peter 2 and follow along as I read the first three verses. But there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. We see in these three verses false teaching expected. And in the context of this passage, it's important for us to consider what Peter is doing here. Against the true, reliable, and divinely moved prophets who wrote God's Word, as they're moved by the Spirit, against those, there were also false prophets among the people. Peter here is referencing back to the Old Testament. As people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and and others are writing down God's words as they're moved by the Holy Spirit, they are surrounded by false teachers. There were also false prophets among the people. This sets a precedent that God's people have always had false prophets or teachers who have sought to undermine what God has said and have refused to submit to God's demands on their life. That's a precedent. Anytime you look at the people of God not far away from them and intermingled in and amongst them are going to be false teachers and prophets who are going to be saying, God doesn't really mean that. God doesn't really, didn't really say that. God doesn't really expect that. Jesus warned that this would happen to the church. In Matthew 24, verse 11, he said, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Those words perhaps are ringing in Peter's ears as he writes in verse 1, Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. But to the people that Peter is writing to, This is no longer a future reality. It is a present reality that they're wrestling with. These false teachers are in the church. And what are these people supposed to do? Peter proceeds in in the rest of verse 1 and verses 2 and 3 to give us a sort of portrait of these false teachers. He walks us through two important avenues of what is false about these teachers. He first shows us what they were teaching. What they are teaching makes them false teachers because they are peddling destructive heresies. These are not tame heresies. These are not minor heresies. These are destructive heresies. From the text, as we read, if you read chapter 2, you see two very closely paralleled teachings. First teaching is eschatological skepticism. Jesus isn't really going to come back. He just said that to make you guys feel good. He's not actually going to come back. Do you really believe he's going to? How could you be so gullible to believe that? There's eschatological skepticism, but secondly, there's lawless living. That is, God's demands for holiness aren't something to bother with. What Peter articulated in chapter 1, how you're to give every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and and that whole list of things, yeah, that's kind of optional. You could do that for extra credit if you want, but you don't have to do that. As a matter of fact, 
Why make your life more difficult? These things are highlighted in their destructiveness. Look in verse 2. Many will follow their destructive ways. So the false teachers are coming in and they're teaching destructive heresies and they're living destructive ways. Sad thing is, many are going to follow their destructive ways. Many are going to be led astray as a result of these false teachers so that's what they teach but what are they like i mean what kind of people are these false teachers peter gives us some insight they secretly bring in deviant teaching that contradicts the gospel this is this is substantial disagreement from what Peter and the other apostles have faithfully proclaimed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is totally in opposition to what the Old Testament has said is what God has said. So they they don't care. They're going to secretly bring in destructive heresies. We might say they will secretly smuggle in destructive heresies. This is not something that they're coming in the door with a big t-shirt that says, Hi, I'm a false teacher on the front of it. They're seeking to secretly subvert and undermine and twist the gospel. Secondly, they couldn't care less about following God's call to holy living. It's not even something that that is a is a starter for them. As a result, we we read in verse two, because of whom, because of of these false teachers who are living destructive ways and taking many in the church with them down this journey of destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way was the designation given to those who were Christ followers. They were followers of the way. And because of these destructive teachers, the way of truth, the reputation of the church, the reputation of Christians is compromised. Their reputation in the community and their reputation before the Lord, the reputation of the name of the Lord, it is slandered, it is reviled, it is blasphemed, it is demeaned, it is torn down. We see this stands in stark contrast to how believers are to live their lives. Look back to the first letter Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks of times when believers will be reviled, when they will be slandered. And in 1 Peter 3.16, Peter says this, "...having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ..." may be ashamed. But here, in 2 Peter 2, the false teachers are coming in and they are giving plenty of ammunition for those outside the church to revile and slander those inside the church because their living doesn't line up with their doctrine, with what they say God has told them. 
We read in verse 3 that by covetousness, they will exploit you. They exploit the believers for greedy gain. Through deceptive words, uh, another way we could say that would be through fabricated words. Again, this is a stark contrast to the prophetic word confirmed in chapter 1. To the eyewitness account that Peter and the other apostles have relayed. That was not fabricated. What the false teachers are teaching, it's deceptive. It's fabricated. But we read also in verse 3 that these false, the false teachers are the recipients of God's destructive punishment. Look in verses 1 and 3. We, we see hints of this theme that, that Peter is going to develop. At the end of verse 1, they bring on themselves swift destruction. The very thing that they're denying is the very thing they are bringing swiftly on themselves. Verse 3, by covetousness they'll exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle. Their destruction does not slumber. Not only is false teaching to be expected among the believers of God, but judgment and destruction are expected for those false teachers. And again, it's important for us to see in these three verses that the teaching and the lifestyle of these false teachers are diametrically opposed to the Gospel. They could not be further apart. Jesus and His message and the Gospel bring life. The false teacher's message brings destruction. Jesus has a divinely originated message. He is the Son of God. His Word is truth. The false teachers, they have fabricated words. In the Gospel, there is something authentic. And in what these false teachers are peddling, it's a look-alike. It's a counterfeit. It's a sham. False teaching is expected. But... There's something that we come across in verse 1 that raises a question for us to consider. In verse 1, Peter writes, There are also false teachers among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. That raises a question. What? How did the false teachers deny the Lord who bought them? That word Lord that you see there in your text is where we get our word despot from. It refers to a supreme authority or master. The Lord who bought them is the same word that's used in other places to speak of someone who is redeemed. It has this this phrase has very strong in those days, slave market imagery. That, that a master would go to a slave auction and he would buy those who would be his. Like, like those, those slaves that he walks away with are his. They, they are not belonging to somebody else. They're his. He bought them. So how did the false teachers deny the Lord who bought them? 
One way we could understand this phrase is that Peter is referring to those who at one time were bought by God and have now denied or rejected their salvation. That, that is one way that we could understand this phrase. The problem with this view is that it diminishes what the Bible teaches about Christ's sacrifice. In Christ's death, he did not merely secure the potential for our redemption. He secured actual redemption. Listen to what Titus 2.14 says, "...who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works." In His death on the cross, Christ actually redeemed us. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption. Not the possibility of redemption. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Hebrews 9.12 Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This is not, again, potential redemption. This is actual redemption. So, did if, if Jesus actually redeemed these false teachers then for them to be facing swift destruction, does that mean that He didn't fully redeem them? One other thing to consider in in how this view denies or minimizes what Christ accomplished. God's redemption of believers is secure. He keeps each one that He saves. He does not lose them. He is not like someone who is carrying too much in one hand and drops things in His hand as He is walking. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10. My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, as he's describing all of this amazing mercy and grace that Christ Jesus has shown us. He says that those who have been bought by Jesus are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's 1 Peter 1.5. 1 John 2.19 speaks of the security of God's redemption of believers. It says, when speaking of false teachers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So a better way for us to understand what Peter means here when he says, how did the false, when we ask, how did the false teachers deny the Lord who bought them? Is to understand this passage in non-salvation terms. That is, Peter here is not speaking of the Lord who bought them in a salvific way. There are several reasons for 
why this is a better way. Peter here is making a strong allusion back to Deuteronomy 32.6. When God and, and Moses in the Old Testament is there warning against the Old Testament prophets, said this, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father who bought you? Has He not made you and established you? This connection that Peter is drawing identifies the false teachers that are in the church that he's writing to with the false prophets of Israel. He's identifying them. He's connecting them. And he did that earlier here in verse 1. Just as there were false prophets among the people, there are going to be false teachers among you. So what Peter is in essence saying is even though these false teachers gave every indication they had been bought by God and were a part of His church, their life, their destructive ways, and end, swift destruction, show they were not a part of God's church. They denied the Lord who bought them. So as we think of these verses and we consider this expected false teaching that is to come into the church. And it is not constrict, it is not constrained just to Peter's day. In our day, there will be false teaching expected. So how do these verses apply to us? What do these three verses mean for you and I? Well, one important thing for us to think through is what makes someone a false teacher versus a faithful Christian we disagree with. Not everybody who disagrees with you on on a theological issue is a false teacher. So how do we know? How do we know what the difference is between a false teacher and someone with different theological views that we may disagree with? There is in, in the Scriptures kind of this grid or matrix of biblical teaching. And so, as we evaluate what someone teaches, what someone says, we have to use God's wisdom, we have to use discernment to say, is what this person's saying in this grid or matrix of faithful biblical teaching? If it's in line with faithful doctrine, then there's room for conscience. We, we see this, in, for example, in modes of baptism. Different eschatological views. Different ways that we come about with different standards of morality or, or ways that we will conduct ourselves. There's a grid, there's a matrix of faithful biblical doctrine, and there's room for disagreement inside that grid. But if it's outside the line of faithful doctrine, if it is compromising the message of the gospel, if it is in danger of twisting or distorting the gospel, then it must be rejected as false teaching. We heard those words read for us in second or in second Timothy 3 this morning that you must reject them Paul in Galatians 1 says if anyone comes preaching to you a gospel other than what I preach to you let him be accursed it is that sort of false teacher that Peter is referencing here 
what we believe matters. It matters eternally. What is the basis for what you believe? Kids, how well do you know your Bible? How often do you read your Bible? This is something that is critically important even for you as kids, that you read God's Word, that you study God's Word, that you meditate on God's Word. You have the enviable privilege of being able to easily and and quickly memorize passages of Scripture that older Christians struggle to memorize. Take advantage of your youth and, and your fresh sponge-like mind to meditate and to memorize God's Word, to know God's Word. Parents, how well are you equipping your kids to know God's Word? Because false teachers aren't going to die off when you die off. False teachers are going to still be around as your kids grow up to be adults. So how well are you equipping your kids to know God's Word? For those of you who, who still have a Monday through Friday or, or some sort of job that you work at, what struggles or trials are you facing at work that God's Word could give you wisdom to sort through? There is so much confusion in our world regarding things that the Bible is crystal clear about. So do you know what the Bible says? Is, is the Bible a source of, of refuge for you and a source of reassurance for you as you face those struggles and persecution at work? Those of you who teach here at church, whether it's teaching kids, whether it's teaching ladies Bible study, whether it's teaching whoever, what are you teaching? Are you teaching your thoughts? Are you teaching what somebody else says? Our job is to teach God's words. So for all of us, when you come to church, what's your posture? Where does your Bible sit? Is it open? Are you looking at at what the preacher is saying? Are you examining for yourself? Are these words, in fact, true words? So often it's easy for the passage to be read and the Bible to be put aside. Have your Bible open so that you can see for yourself. There is false teaching that is to be expected, but the second thing that we see in our text is that false teaching is punished. False teaching is punished, and we see this in verses 4 through 10. Follow along as I begin reading in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows 
how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. What we see in these verses is false teaching punished. This section establishes the certainty of the destruction that Peter outlined for the false teachers in verses 1-3. through How swift is their destruction? How certain is their destruction? How can we be sure that their judgment is not in fact slumbering? Verses 4 through the beginning of verse 10 help us see. This is one long sentence. And it explains the precedent for judgment. If, If God judges the ungodly... Peter also elaborates on, will the, will the people who follow God be consumed? Are they, are they accidentally going to be included in judgment that they supposedly had escaped? So in this long sentence in verses 4-10, through 10, there are two themes that we see about God. We see God's justice in condemning and judging the ungodly. That God is just in condemning and judging the ungodly. God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell. Beginning of verse 5, we could say, and if God did not spare the ancient world, but brought in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Verse 6, if God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and condemned them to destruction, then we read in verse 9, God knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God has a track record regarding justly condemning and judging the ungodly. And it is a pretty significant track record. It goes from from cosmic to local. He didn't spare the angels who sinned. He didn't spare the world who sinned. He didn't spare the cities who sinned. God is just in condemning and judging the ungodly. But the second theme that we see here is God's faithful deliverance of the godly from destruction. Look in verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Verse 7. And if God delivered righteous Lot... Verse 8 tells us that that righteous man tormented his righteous soul. And then we read in verse 9 that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. You see, God doesn't just have a great track record regarding just judgment on the ungodly. God has a proven track record regarding delivering the godly from destruction. These two themes point us to Jesus. 
Because John chapter 3 tells us that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Everyone who's not believed is already condemned because they have not believed on the only begotten Son of God. There is the justice. But God, through Jesus, offers salvation because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. We see the reality of condemnation. God did not spare those who were sinners. If you have never trusted in Christ this morning, God will not spare you of certain condemnation. He is just and He will condemn sin. But there is the reality of a rescue that has been provided through Jesus Christ. God did deliver those who were righteous. Four times in this passage, he uses righteous. He talks about Noah being a preacher of righteousness. He delivered righteous Lot. He tormented his righteous soul. That righteous man tormented his righteous soul. So clearly, there is a connection between deliverance and righteousness. The question is, where is your righteousness found this morning? Is it solely found in Christ? That is within the bounds of faithful gospel teaching. Flip back to 2 Peter 1 and look at the very first verse. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Listen to these opening words that Peter writes. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So where is your righteousness found this morning, friend? Have you solely put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for His righteousness? Your righteousness will not suffice. Your righteousness won't deliver you from judgment. So friend, trust in Christ for salvation. Repent of your sin and believe in Christ for salvation. These two themes, Peter continues to build on these themes though, and he uses three Old Testament illustrations that demonstrate the judgment of God on the wicked and the deliverance of the godly. He first talks about the angels who sinned. This is more than likely a reference to when the angels were kicked out of heaven or this could also be a reference to Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, we read of how the sons of God came down and committed gross iniquity and sin among the people of Israel. Peter does not tip his hand one way or the other which thing he has in mind, but given the fact that Noah comes right after this, 
it's best to lean that direction of Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 1-4 being what Peter has in mind here. He did not spare the angels who sinned and notice the punishment. He cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Their judgment is on layaway. It's coming. He doesn't just talk about the angels who sinned though. He talks about the ancient world in Noah's day. Not only does God spare the ancient world, but He saves Noah and his family. There's an important lesson for us though, because no matter how small the remnant of faithful Christians, as small as eight, Noah, one of eight people, no matter how small the remnant of faithful Christians, God is faithful in saving even that small remnant from judgment. Then he moves to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Both this example and the example of Noah are used by Jesus. Jesus in Luke 17 predicts the certain destruction of the wicked at His return and He uses the days of Noah and of Sodom and Gomorrah as His two illustrations. No doubt Peter has that in his mind as he writes to these believers. But the emphasis in in talking about Sodom and Gomorrah is not so much on Sodom and Gomorrah as much as it is the deliverance of Lot. Lot is said here, he's described as righteous Lot. That righteous man tormented his righteous soul. He's considered to be righteous. That is, he had a proper relationship with God. He's similar to Abraham and Noah in that regard. But Lot, this is a man with some serious flaws. How in the world is this guy considered righteous? Did Lot have his flaws? Absolutely. You and I have our flaws. We are seriously flawed human beings as well. But Lot was righteous before God. He followed God. And, and there is, if we go back to Genesis 18 and 19 and we look at what Abraham does when God comes to visit him and how Lot reacts when the two strangers come to visit him, they are, they are very parallel. Abraham is sitting down. He sees a stranger coming. He stands up to greet him. Lot sees two strangers coming. He is sitting down. He stands up, greets them. Both of them welcome them into their house. Both of them show hospitality. And in the Old Testament, one of the premier signs of someone who was a follower of God is that they demonstrated hospitality to strangers. Lot resembles Abraham in that situation. Not only that, but when Abraham is pleading and interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, he asks God to spare the city if, if he will find, and he, and he goes from a large number, 50 people, all the way down to 10, and he uses an interesting word to describe these types of people. He doesn't say, if you find 50 family members, will you spare the city? If you find 50 good people, will you spare the city? No. Abraham says, if you find 50 
righteous people will you spare the city. All the way down to ten. God did not find ten righteous souls, and so the city was destroyed. But He did find righteous Lot and delivered him and his family from destruction. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. It's important for us to see that it was not Lot's sparkling behavior that was the basis for his righteousness. It was the fact that God had made Lot righteous. He was righteous before God. Peter details two things that indicate Lot was, in fact, righteous. And we see this in, verse, in verses 7 and 8. Lot was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. It was not comfortable the way that he lived. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct. There was something that oppressed him about that filthy conduct. Verse 8, that righteous man tormented his righteous soul. Not periodically. Not every once in a while. He tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So he was oppressed by the conduct of the wicked and his righteous soul was tormented by the deeds of the wicked regularly. In a similar way, Christians will be oppressed by the false teachers. Christians will have their souls distressed by the wickedness that they observe around them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a sense in which you have some common ground with Lot. As you live in this fallen world, in this sinful world, do you not feel oppression by the filthy conduct of the wicked? Is your soul not tormented from day to day as you see and hear the lawless deeds of those around you? Verses 9 and 10 are really the center of where Peter is going. It concludes Peter's argument and is the main thrust of these verses. Peter wants these believers and God wants us to get two massive truths. Number one, the Lord knows how to deliver those who are His faithful followers. He knows how to deliver those who are His faithful followers. And secondly, the Lord knows how to reserve the ungodly for eternal judgment. He knows how to reserve the ungodly for eternal judgment. Why do they need to know these things? Why are those the two truths that as false teachers are coming into the church and twisting and distorting the gospel, why are those the two things that Peter wants his audience to get? If we flip back and look at 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11, we see why he is telling them this. Why they need to know this. Because in 2 Peter 1, verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never, you will never stumble. 
For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter wants them to stand firm on the Word of God. Peter wants them to continue abounding in godliness. Why should they do that? Why shouldn't they follow the false teachers? Why are the false teachers all that bad? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Peter encourages them with these things because he knows that if they persevere and continue in standing on the Word and abounding in godliness, they will have an entrance into the everlasting kingdom of God. What you believe matters eternally. So this section applies to us. It is relevant for us. Have you grown lax in following God? Have you neglected to spend time in the Word with God? Have you grown weary of the evils of this world to the point that you don't want to share Christ with those who will perish? Peter's encouragement to you is be diligent to continue. Does the lawlessness of our world cause you to grieve? As you look around, are you tormented by the evil deeds of the ungodly in our world? Brother and sister in Christ, wait eagerly for the coming of Christ. As I was contemplating the the grief and the oppression that Lot felt, the tormenting that he felt, one of a song that has meant much to me came into came into my mind do you feel the world is broken we do do you feel the shadows deepen we do but do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through we do do you wish that you could see it all made new we do Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. This passage points us to the faithfulness of God. Because He will bring about what He has promised. His track record is amazing. And you can be certain that He will judge and punish the ungodly and He will deliver and rescue the godly. Older saints, as you live days filled with pain and aches and doctor appointments, know that God will deliver you in His time.
you can patiently and eagerly live each day for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the encouragement that Peter has for us. That in the expectation of the false teachers, they're going to be there. What anchors us in following and persevering and abounding in godliness and following our Savior until He returns? God's track record. So may God give us grace to trust Him as we seek to cling to His Word and abound in holy living as we wait for His return. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You that You are not fickle. You are not subject to change. What You have promised, You will do. What You have said You will do, You will do. Help us not just to know in our heads that You will deliver the righteous and reserve the unjust for punishment. Help us to believe it and to live it. Help us to be diligent, to abound in what You have called us to do in holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.